It's lovely to see you all. There's quite a chunk tonight. So I will be going at a bit of a pace, but I will try and make it nice and clear. So we're starting in Genesis, chapter 8, verses 15 through to the end of chapter 9. And then we'll be, I'll give you a couple of minutes, and we're going to be flicking to Romans, chapter 8, starting at verse 16. So here we go. Genesis 8, starting at verse 15. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives. All the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on land came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of humans even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground and on all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply on the earth and increase upon it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, 
I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backwards and covered the father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Okay, Romans. Okay, Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 16, ending at verse 25. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Brilliant. Thank you, Fiona. And uh, evening, everyone. Please um, do flick on back to page 10 uh, and that first little reading from Genesis. And here's a question. What kind of world do we live in? Um, imagine that tonight a Martian walked into church, an alien from Mars, walked into church tonight, 
Um, and thankfully, they haven't come to uh, destroy us or beam us up to the mothership. Um, they've come on a fact-finding mission. And uh, this Martian says to us, look, I know nothing about your planet. I don't know the, the first thing uh, about your world. So tell me, what kind of world is this? Um, tell me, what, what kind of world do you live in? I wonder what we'd say. Um, what comes to mind as you consider the, the world in which we live? Now, that's unlikely to happen. Uh, a Martian coming to church, um, you might just wonder about the person sitting next to you, but um, they're probably an earthling. Uh, but it is important to understand the world in which we live. Uh, imagine that someone moves here to live in Cambridge, uh, and the house they build for themselves doesn't have any doors, just empty doorways, because they assume there, there's no crime in Cambridge. Uh, and they fill their wardrobe with shorts and Hawaiian shirts, because they think, well, the weather's always going to be toasty um, all year round. And they invest in a Ferrari sports car, because they think the roads in Cambridge are always clear, never get queued up, no one-way systems to worry about. Um, well, they're in for a shock or two, aren't they? Uh, see, being ignorant of where we live uh, can lead to things going wrong. And for us to live appropriately, we need to understand the world in which we live. And this, this strange account from Genesis, uh, and it is weird, isn't it? Um, it is strange. If you're not yet a Christian, you might think, gosh, what, what on earth do, can I learn from this? Uh, but this account from Genesis, whether you're a Christian believer or not, can shed light for us uh, on the world in which we live and how to live in it. So, three things. Uh, three things for our Martian friend, but more relevantly, three things for us about the world that we live in. Here's the first. That the world we live in is fallen. Now, some background to this story from a few weeks ago. Earlier in this story, God looked on the world and he saw that it was full of violence and that people's hearts were only ever inclined to evil all the time. Uh, now, that is not how God created the world to be. He created a very good world. He hates evil. And seeing what a mess the world had become, God's response was to send a flood and wipe everything out. Uh, Last time, we saw that it's like God was undoing his creation, uh, tearing down everything he'd built. But thankfully, the story doesn't end there. Because that first passage Fiona read, um, what we see is not God hitting the shutdown button, but God hitting the restart button. God hits restart, and decreation is followed by recreation. Uh, in fact, as Fiona read, if you know the Bible, maybe you heard some echoes of Genesis 1 and 2, uh, the first chapters of the Bible where God made the world in the first place. Uh, we didn't read verse 1 of chapter 8, but God sends a wind over the waters. Uh, a wind, same Hebrew word for the spirit that hovered over the waters back in verse 2 of Genesis 1 when God gets creating. The waters recede, and dry land appears, just like God separated land from waters. Uh, God brings all sorts of living creatures to live on the earth again. 
Noah. God has preserved Noah and everyone with him in the ark. And Noah, Noah's like a new Adam, a new head of humanity. Like before, God tells him to go be fruitful, fill the earth. Like before, God gives them food to eat. Like before, God says all people are made in his image. All these echoes of Genesis 1 and 2, when God created the world. And it makes you wonder, maybe this is a fresh start. Maybe God uh, is bringing everything back to the very good world he made without anything evil in it. Maybe the flood brings in a whole new world. But it's not like that. Turns out God hitting the restart button with the flood is like me hitting the restart button on my phone. See, my phone, when I bought this uh, from the factory, uh, well, you know, when it came out of the factory, it was very good. Nothing wrong with it. But at some point along the way, it got broken. Uh, the screen started playing up. Uh, and while I appreciate being able to restart my phone, it's handy in some ways, it does not bring it back to its original factory condition. The screen is still broken when I hit the restart button. And originally, God made a very good world, nothing wrong with it. It's Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden, paradise. But Adam, the head of humanity, turned away from God. Uh, and with him, our whole world fell into sin, death, decay. And when God hits the restart button with the flood, it's like hitting the restart button on my phone doesn't restore the world back to its original very good condition. It is still broken. And you see that here. Earlier, God entrusted humanity with loving rule of creation. 9 verse 2, now it's darker. The fear and dread of you will fall on the animals, like before, but twisted. Earlier, God gave humanity a vegetarian diet to eat. Verse 3, now God recognizes people will want to eat animals, and he permits that too. And personally, I love a good steak, um, but I think this is saying that there's something not ideal about that, um, that there's a disharmony in nature now between people and animals that wasn't there before. And yes, verse 6, people are still in God's image, but now it's in the context of God's image bearers killing each other, and they need to restrain that. See, for all the echoes of Eden, we're not back in the garden here. When the flood ended and people got off the ark, they didn't step into a whole new world. They just stepped back into the same old fallen world, they'd left behind. And if you ask, why? Why is the world no different after a flood? 8 verse 21 tells you, it's because people are no different. See that in 8 verse 21? God says, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, just like before. Someone put it like this, um, ask a Sunday school class, what did Noah bring into the ark with him? Uh, and the kids shout out, bunny rabbits. Uh, yes, that is right. Uh, what else? 
uh, I don't kangaroos. Uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah, well, well what else? Um, and they, they name all the animals they can think of, and then that kind of runs dry, and yes, well, well, what else? And someone remembers, oh, well, he brought his family in too. And you say, yes, what else? What else did Noah bring into the ark with him? What else did he bring back out with him? Sin, evil in his heart. This side of the flood, the heart of the problem is still the problem of the human heart. And that, that weird stuff at the end of chapter nine, um, that's there to show us that even Noah is no exception. This new head of humanity, well, how does he end up? An old man, drunk and naked, and then he dies. It's a little rerun of Adam's fall in Genesis 3. So what's the point for us? Well, if this world has fallen from the heights of paradise, then this passage is telling us, you are here in a fallen world. And even a restart as big as a flood can't change that. Why is that helpful? Well, um, knowing that helps us to have a healthy realism instead of being naive. Um, and maybe you don't need a reminder like this. Maybe it's painfully obvious to you that we live in a fallen world. Maybe life is just really hard, uh, terrible things on the news that we're all aware of. But we can be naive. Um, maybe you're younger and you've had a pretty nice upbringing. And it can really knock you to discover that there's some really grim stuff in the world, in us. Now, it's right to be sad about that, but we are to expect it. Or maybe, maybe we hope that something will give us a fresh start, a new job, a new relationship, uh, getting married, a new city, having kids, uh, taking a gap year, retiring. Some change, we hope, will fix life. Well, those are all good things, but they will not unfall life. With or without them, we'll still live in a fallen world. Can't fix that any more than a flood could. Or it can be a cultural thing, uh, the belief that with the right conditions, we can make the world into a utopia, a paradise, with technology, education, government, uh, those things can fix the world's problems. Or um, others think that those very things are the problem. Um, get rid of technology, government. That's what we need. Uh, go back to nature. Be free. Then it would be paradise. And both of those are naive. Because whether we have many institutions or no institutions, the problem is still the problem of the human heart. Fly a colony of people to Mars to start again, a whole new world. And like Noah, they just bring sin with them. You are here. We live in a fallen world, and I highlight that so we'll be realistic, not naive. But of course, there is a danger it could push us all the way to the other extreme, to being cynical. Uh, asking, well, if this world's so broken, then what's the point? 
you know, if we're stuck in a fallen world, why bother with life? Why not just disengage, check out, give up on life? You know that feeling. Well, this story helps us be realistic, not naive. The world has fallen. But it also says to us, don't rush to cynicism. Because the world we live in is preserved. See, for all the fallenness of the world, this story is actually really life-affirming. Remember what we just saw after the flood. People's hearts are still evil. Now, that is the exact reason why God sent a flood in the first place. God sees evil hearts, so he sends a flood. And since people's hearts are still evil, you could wonder, well, how long until the next flood? Is God going to hit the restart button again and again and again because of evil hearts? And if he was, then there really would be no point to doing life. Uh, there would be no point to it. You know, why invest in something if it's just going to be swept away by the next flood? If the world's just completely unpredictable? And in this story, God says, I'm not going to do that. Despite the evil in people's hearts, I'm going to preserve the world and keep it going. See that in 8 verse 21 again? The Lord said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. What's God saying here? Well, God is saying that the world is still fallen, but instead of undoing it again, he'll preserve it. There will be a basic stability and predictability to it. So let me ask, why do you think the sun will rise tomorrow? Why do you think that gravity will continue holding our chairs to the ground instead of us just floating off? Why is there a rhythm to the seasons? Why are we going into winter or autumn from, from summer? I mean, honestly, I just usually take all those things completely for granted. They're a given. But this is saying that those things are only a given because they are graciously given to us by God. It's not that things don't go wrong, but they really could be worse, and we deserve them to be worse. But God gives our world a stability we don't deserve. And though the world is full of evil, he keeps it spinning. All people benefit from this grace. And it gives us the big reason not to give up on the world. Don't give up on the world because God hasn't given up on it. As not ideal as it is, he wants it to continue. In other words, God preserves our world so that we can make a life in it. See what he commands Noah in 9 verse 1? Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Don't hold back, Noah. Make a life in the world as fallen as it is. 9 verse 7, 
be fruitful and increase in number, multiply upon the earth and increase upon it. In other words, have babies. Yeah, you're, you're bringing them into a fallen world, but have them. Build things, though they may fall apart someday. Work and study, though it's often frustrating. Still, go for it. Invest in friendships, even though they'll never be ideal. Throw yourself into living life, because though this world isn't perfect, God has committed to preserving it so that we can make a life in it. Very life-affirming. Now, you might be thinking, Michael, you've been talking for ages, um, and, uh, well, you might just want me to sit down. Um, you've been talking for ages, uh, and you haven't mentioned the best thing yet in this whole passage, the rainbow. Um, let me say a couple of things. Um, this general stability God promises the world, notice it's secured by sacrifice. That's it, verse 20. Noah offers God a sacrifice. And verse 21, it's the sacrifice that prompts God to preserve creation, not destroy it like before. The sacrifice of one man brings blessing to all creation. And notice too, it's guaranteed by covenant. That's nine verse eight and kind of onwards. Lots of covenant stuff there. And a covenant, if that's a new word for you, that just means a binding agreement. And a covenant's gonna be a big deal as the Bible goes on. But this is the first covenant mentioned in scripture where God pledges to preserve creation. Now, unlike most agreements, it's completely one-sided, isn't it? God just makes promises and doesn't require anything back. It's unconditional. And the sign of a covenant is a rainbow. I don't know, well, when's the last time you saw a rainbow in the sky? Maybe sometime this week, we've had loads of rain for a change. Um, today, the rainbow's normally a sign for sexual liberation. Uh, but God here, he kind of gives it a, a different meaning originally. See, the Hebrew word for rainbow that we have in our Bible, it's just the word for bow, as in an archer's bow. That's what it means almost always in the Bible. Uh, and here it's like God is saying, well, yes, I've been on a war of annihilation against the earth. Uh, I sent a flood to wipe out all life, but now I'm hanging up my weapon placing my bow in the clouds. And next time you see a rainbow after it's been raining, say to yourself, well, this rain hasn't destroyed everything. God has kept his promise, his bow is in the clouds, and he's preserving the earth. So that's why our world keeps going through sacrifice. God has graciously covenanted to do it. And yet, it doesn't fully answer why, does it? Why keep the sun rising day after day when those days are full of evil? Why should the God who made a very good world let it continue so broken and fallen? Well, that's where our reading for Romans comes in, and it takes us to this final thing, that the world we live in is groaning. Strange thought, isn't it, um, on the screens from verse 22 of Romans 8. 
but creation is groaning. Like you press a stethoscope up against a tree or a boulder, and the sound you hear is oh, groaning. Um, I mean, that stethoscope doesn't exist, obviously, but um, it's like Paul saying, if you could sit down creation and ask, how are you doing? The sound you get back is groaning. And that groaning, what it expresses is a dissatisfaction with the present, as if creation groans, oh, I wish I wasn't so broken. And it's also a longing for the future. Paul says, um, it's like childbirth, groans of pain now, but looking forward, longing for what's to come. And so what's creation longing for? Well, verse 19 on the screens, the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. See, it's possible that in a fallen world, we lose heart and despair at all the brokenness. Or we feel at home and we're happy enough for things to go on as they are. I wonder which of those you're more prone to, uh, despair at the fallenness of the world or the wrong kind of contentment with it. It's not that bad. Life's fine. Uh, it's not too bad. Well, either way, creation points us in the right direction because creation longs. It knows there's glory to come, and it can't wait, because there's a new head of humanity. Noah fell into sin and death, but Jesus is different. The only person who never stumbled, never compromised, because his heart is pure goodness. He is perfect, God in the flesh, and so Jesus' story doesn't end with a fall into sin and death, but being raised to life and glory. And Jesus, well, on the cross, Jesus sacrificed himself, not to preserve a fallen world, but to make up for all the world's evil and do away with it. This one man's sacrifice brings blessing to all creation, secures a day when groaning will give way to glory a perfect world. And so what's the world longing for? Well, it's longing, groaning, for this new head of humanity to take his place. And here's the breathtaking thing, that if you are trusting in Jesus, um, if you've come into covenant relationship with him, um, if you're trusting in Jesus, or if you come to put your trust in him, if that's you, then here's the breathtaking thing that creation is longing for you to take your place with him, longing to see the children of God glorified and to share in their glory. Because when Christ takes his place, your heart will be made as perfectly good as his heart, and you'll be raised with him to unbroken life and glory, and creation will follow suit. That's what the world is longing for. So if you find yourself wrongly satisfied with a fallen world, happy enough for things to go on as they are, 
then learn to long and groan with creation. Enjoy the good things of this world as a little taste of what's to come. And if you find yourself despairing with a fallen world, learn to long and groan. When you experience the bad and sad things of this life, remember, that will not be there. Our present sufferings aren't worth comparing with the glory to come. Well, three things about the world we live in. Our world is fallen, so we're realistic, not naive. Our world is preserved, so we gratefully make a life in it. And our world is groaning, so we long for the glory to come. I don't know, maybe there's one of, maybe there's one of those that you particularly want to bring into your week uh, and remember in the week ahead. Maybe there's one that you'd like to chat about with others as we have tea and coffee uh, later. But a moment to consider that, uh, and then I'll pray. Our Father, um, you know we live in a fallen world. Uh, you know its fallenness even, even more than we do. Uh, we pray you'd help us to, to be able to live grateful for how you preserve it and, and grateful that we can make a life in it, that we, we have a world that, that generally works much better than we deserve by your grace. And we pray, we pray most of all, you'd help us to long and groan uh, for the remade world to come to long for sharing in Christ's glory and all creation with us. And we pray it in his name. Amen.